in trouble. Here we go. Welcome to our special episode of our new Tuesday talk, Born in Trouble. I'm your host, John X. A little bit different format today. No panel, just one guest, the illustrious Dr. Kimye Nuru Dennis. Hey, thank you for having me, John X. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Much appreciated, much appreciated. I was very happy to see you responded to this, uh, what was that, Pod Chaser, where we actually met? Whatever. Yeah, Pod Match. Pod yeah. Match. Pod match. It's sort of like deep. It's sort of like deep match, but it's pod. It's for podcasters. So, right. So now we are together. But seriously, Doctor Doctor Kimya, Nuru Dennis, Kimya, 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 See, that, it's just like a date. I'm already like messing up your name. Next thing I, well, I would over. be walking out the restaurant by now. I'd be like, I'm good. Uh, well, good. you know, you know what? I'd I pick out mac and cheese. I, I, I ordered the drinks first. If you, I ordered the drinks first. So if you walk out on your drink, then that's what I need. And I just got two. You I know. took it to the head and just ah, see, see, <laughs> see. This is why you got that PhD. That's how you got <laughs> it. <laughs> You're thinking fast. You're thinking oh, fast. I can't oh, even. Goodness. I'm not even getting it past to, I'm not even getting no d'oeuvres yet. I'm not getting no d'oeuvres. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. But you are a PhD sociologist, community activist, expert on criminal and sexual health, and the founder of 365 Diversity. That's a great resume. And also you're a hip-hop historian. I had yes. thrown that in before I even actually found out you were a hip-hop yes. historian. So you got yes. me on that. Because you you uh gave us the you gave me the the link right there when you said that Rock Him is the goat. Rock Him is the goat. Yeah. yeah, it's not debatable. So anyone listening to this who wants to debate, we're not friends already. Um, <laughs> and by the way, you would be one of those twenty one MCs. Uh oh. So, uh... You know, don't don't come for me. You don't want to be one of them twenty one. I'm just letting you know. Uh oh. Uh oh. Back it up. Hurricane G, move back. <laughs> so one of the reasons why I jumped at the opportunity to, sp- to speak with you beyond your commitment and credentials is um, obviously your bravery. You've been through a lot of different things. You speak truth to power, and that's what I like to do. I like to speak truth to power. And um, you are you stay and you stick within. You know, most people, they don't do that. What they do is they try to stay and they stick within certain boundaries and um, boundaries of acceptability with words and keywords and positions and things like that. And I admire you, you know. Thank you. I'm just going to come out and say that. I admire you. I want to tell you that pregame because I want you to get the genuine understanding of, like, you know, where we are, where we stand. I respect all of the work that you do. Thank you. Especially the work that you've done with um, police and what you've done with a lot of different things. So I think we should have an interesting conversation. So let's just go ahead and get into it because this show is supposed to be about finding solutions to problems. And that's one thing that you do. You find solutions. So you want to tell me a little bit about your work with diversity training with police, for example. That's one place that you've done a lot of different work with, right? Different police departments. Yeah, well, okay. So I'm an activist, sociologist, criminologist, educator. I used to be a professor in North Carolina. Then I left academia in terms of full-time 
employment in academia. And I am trained in centuries of Black activism, Black scholarship before this diversity, equity, inclusion, catchphrase parties happened mm-hmm. years ago, before there were the acronyms DEI, DNI, before anti-racism was a catch, um, before all this stuff, before mm-hmm. people started wasting time and money on implicit bias trainings and unconscious bias trainings. I am trained in the people who are people, African Black people, who have done this real work for centuries on the Western Hemisphere and tens of thousands of years on continent African parts of the world. And I always say that because when people meet me, they, they're only familiar with stuff that white liberals, white progressives, and white anti-fascists have mm-hmm. announced are credible. And I tell people, you're not dismantling white dominance and white terrorism if it's based on the approval of any white people. doesn't Mm. matter who the white people voted for. If it's based on their approval, their permission, their funding, then that is white terrorism. It's There's always been happy white people. There's always Mm. been polite white people. That's, you know, also five centuries when this land was stolen and Indigenous people were murdered. There was white people back then offering, you know, Blackfoot natives uh, a slice of pie, you know, something stupid to distract right. from the murder happening. So that's always been the case. Fire, so, fire uh, water. Yeah, you know, here's right. some water while we're murdering you, you know. Right. Like, you know, Jesus I'll, loves you, that kind of distraction. I'll, blank, so, I'll blanket uh, with chicken pox. For, you know. You know, <laughs> right, right. So, so the work that I do is this real work before white academia created academic programs to make money from it, before people started going based on what books are New York Times bestseller, before all of that existed, indigenous and African Black people were in the grounds doing this work, being murdered doing this work, being incarcerated, being terrorized by police dogs doing this work. Um, and we have centuries of writings. So whenever people say they're not familiar with this, I say you're not familiar with this because you are going based on catchwords, catchphrases, profitable stuff versus the centuries of actual writings that white people intentionally keep out of libraries, that white people keep out of schools. And um, I could go on and on. But just a small thing, you mentioned police work. So okay. I created a crime academic program. So for nine years, I was in charge of the courses. I did nine years of recruiting for police departments. Some of my students are now police officers. I volunteered for crisis intervention team trainings for police departments. And still after all of that, as a criminologist with a background of criminal justice, I do not support police. I want... if. If they refuse to get rid of police altogether, because they will, because they will always pretend that getting rid of police means we're all going to start killing each other because, you know, that's that's the way that they try to disguise. Let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Do you live in the area where you did a lot of your diversity training with police? Do they actually anyone in your area or have you trained any of the police that are that service your neighborhood? No. So now I live in Baltimore City, Maryland. Okay. And no matter where you go across the nation, police will brag about 
being trained in implicit bias. Mm-hmm. It, that means nothing. Uh, police and medical providers and health providers, they're the ones who kill us the most legally, and all of them have done bias trainings. Yeah, I find that interesting. That was going to be my first question. Why do you find that bias training is really a waste of time? And Because um, the results don't yeah. seem to bear out yeah. that there's any difference between it. You know, yeah, like when, when I teach, uh, when I do community trainings, when I do conference presentations, I tell people this is not about whether white people like me as an African black woman. Uh, I'm an African black woman born and raised in Richmond, VA, second capital confederacy. And liberation, freedom and justice is not about whether white people want to take me for lunch tomorrow. It's 100 percent about white people getting out the way. And white people not controlling everything. I don't care if white people have bias. That's well, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure they must love you, and you must make a lot of Christmas lists. <laughs> that, that goes back to the bias. They don't have to love me. The problem is that white people, uh, white people stalk us. You know, they can't just disagree and be like, "I'm going on my life." I tell white people when I do this work, those of you who are staring at me. I know you're quiet because you're probably going to create a burner account or fake email address to start stalking me. Mm. That's the routine Uh, that's happened to our people for centuries. So now white people use internet platforms to do the same routine. And I always tell people who do this work that if you've never been harassed by white people, white people have never complained about you in this equity work. It's because you're not doing equity work. You're doing keep white people powerful and happy work. Mm. Completely different thing. Mm. When white people in your book is a bestseller and you're part of white people's book clubs, there's a reason for that. Well, I see my clapping icon is going to get a uh, workout and I hope that you don't break the button with all these points that you're making because I just agree with pretty much everything that you said. Oh, Uh, well, i got to say something to which you disagree now. Um, Mm-hmm. So let me just think of something. Go ahead. <laughs> Figure it out. Me thinking, like, mm. we'll, we'll, work, we'll work on it. We'll find out like later on in the show. You know, most people, you know, want solutions. They don't like being challenged. Um, there's a big thing going on with the, with even like, it's not really a big thing. I don't think that, I think that we both agree that social media really doesn't have the strength or the importance that most people ascribe to it. It's really the power that you get from social media is that, Everyone is listening to it. Everyone has an opinion. Uh, Does it really affect your life? I guess it affects you if you decide to let these things and the opinions of strangers bother you. Mm -hmm. There can be platform. I mean, it's social media can be an outlet, like any form of communication among humans for centuries is is a, well, tens of thousands of years, right? Humans communicate in different ways whether that's writing something in stone and bricks, writing something in the sand. We talk about oral verbal communications, the history of, of our people with um, unwritten work. Right. And, and so social media can be that. I just always tell communities and my students that that can't be the platform. Like just cause you found some on black Twitter, don't use it as a citation for a for my course, unless mm. it's something that you've also learned more about beyond what you saw on Black Twitter, because mm. we can kick all sorts of knowledge, but we also have to find ways to just follow up because that's just part of the process of learning. Well, 
knowledge without facts, without a without a um, statistical basis, without um, any type of research, is really just anyone can bloviate on the on the internet or on the radio or anywhere and say whatever they want to say. Um, that's kind of like the world that we live in today. Every day I seem to be getting aggressed by different people, whether it be in one form or another. And the message to me seems to always be the same. Um, no matter what you say, because of your race, it doesn't, it means less than what I say. And, you know, I mean, you could accept that if you were a fool or if you had no pride in yourself, but that's not something that I'm willing to do. We find bias every place that we go um, with the police, with the police, getting back to that subject, teaching them. I know we had discussed beforehand, before we even were on the show about how your feeling is that no matter how many black people join the police force, we're not changing that. We're not changing the way that they behave. And I think that the city that you live in, in Baltimore, is a prime example of that. Um, The people, the Freddie, was it Freddie Gray case? Uh-huh. Most of those police officers were black people, the ones that were indicted. They weren't doing yeah. it because of their because of a racial thing. They were doing it because of the power dynamic. That power they dynamic and what people and what police do to keep their job. So, uh, well, there's a few things I want to respond to. So one of them, we talk about statistical analysis. There's no such thing that humans have ever created that was that is without bias. Mm-hmm. So when people so, you know, me as a social scientist, I'm trained in quantitative research, but I specialize in qualitative research, like participant observation, speaking to our people and so forth. And everything that we do as people has bias, right? There's no objectivity. Same thing when we talk about collecting crime data, suicide data, also specializing in black suicide, there's always going to be missing information. And that's one of the difficulties trying to collaborate with police. And that's no matter where you are around the world, they... Although they're what we call a dark figure in crime, because dark figure is a difference between what's really going on and what's actually being, quote unquote, solved in the data collection we have. Right. Police are always going to swear that they're that that they're misunderstood. Uh, you know, it's the same thing over and over again. And so when we're looking at black police, um, you know, me, when I created the crime academic program and I was in charge of that for nine years. OK. For me to get black students, to get women students, to get non-white indigenous, non-white Latinx, um, non-white Hispanic students. And I always had to explain to the students that this is this is what we call tokenism. Right. It's like that old commercial. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any question? You know, this is tokenism. your brain on tokenism. Any questions? The poster. You're on a poster now. Um, And that's how white systems do that. Like we look at the history of American police. And again, it was white people before there were uniforms. It was white people monitoring, controlling, killing us, especially after Emancipation Proclamation. And that developed into police departments. Many Klan's people are police officers, you know, that whole routine for, for centuries. And so I always tell people even HBCUs, any place that has connection with police departments to keep your job, you're harming our people. Like that's the requirement. So what I always demand since people pretend that we can't dismantle police altogether is I always demand that, and I've told police this face to face, which is why, you know, um, a lot of times they're happy to see me as a black woman criminologist from a tokenism standpoint, Mm -hmm. but when I don't, 
piece. When I say actually, I request that you all get annually audited. I demand an annual financial audit and annual reports of behaviors. I also demand that 95% of funds are removed from every police department and 95% of people are removed from employment and police departments. Once I get into those details, which by the way, our people, Black folk, we have sent a century of demands to police departments, medical facilities, and schools. We put it in writing, all that stuff. Once I go through all that, that's when... um, that's why I'm the angry black woman. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. Do you really think the dynamics of defunding the police is actually something that would be good for inner city neighborhoods, for black neighborhoods in particular? Yes. Yes. Because the money is coming from the preventive measures that we should be having in the first place. So, um, so, so do you feel like do you feel like there needs to be some type of a balance between the police or are you just really you really could see like 95%, you threw 95%, 95% of the police in, in Baltimore gone tomorrow. Not just Baltimore city, but everywhere. So there's no such thing as balance. We have police departments. Okay. That's like saying balance and you have a prison system. There's no such thing as balance when you have this power majority and they're making billions upon billions of dollars. They can't be controlled by the government. There's the white supremacy embedded in all of it. Because white supremacy, white terrorism, white power is embedded in all of this, regardless of whether white people are actually physically present. So there's no way, there's no such thing as balance. Like that's, Black folk have been told that for almost five centuries, mm-hmm. that there's balance in white terrorism. Yeah, I'm lynching you niggas, but there's balance in that. <laughs> it's not like, funny, yeah, but... we're selling postcards. Like white folks are posing White children are posing, smiling beside a lynched black person Mm -hmm. from a tree. They're selling it and sending it as postcards that you can still find online in 2021. But we're still told balance. That's their. That's part of their culture that they need to own up to. And one of the reasons they don't why, need to own up to that because that that will never happen. The white people who own up to it are the white people who only care about taking us to lunch. They're not the white people who are really working to dismantle the system. So whenever people say balance, the only balance I care about are New Balance. Those are my favorite shoes. Besides, <laughs> I had a pair of those in tenth grade. Used to rock. Don't me. don't do that. Don't do that. I That's judgmental. No, I, no I, I had a pair of New Balance in tenth grade. I they were great shoes at one time. Oh. I, was, I was a baller. I used to play ball. It was the the company was new yeah. and everything, mm. and they were they were high tech back then. I don't know what they are yeah. right now, but back then they were they, high tech. They look they look the same. They're the same. It's, yeah, they, yeah, it's basic. That's yeah, the they, they helped me make the cut. But I think that they. I was surprised. Um, I think that that owner of that company came out and done something dubious. As far as like race was concerned, so I would have to yes. look that up. I don't remember yes. exactly what it was. With, yeah, that's the case with a lot of the clothing attire that Black folk made famous. Mm. So I always tell our people when we support businesses, clothing lines that are not, and even sometimes when it's Black made, because you know our Blackness encompasses a full span of genders, sexualities, all these identities that have existed for thousands of years. No white people did not create this stuff and force mm-hmm. it on us. So there are a lot of things that we as Black folk, when we patronize it, like even when I say New Balance, guess what? I'm a thrift store person, so I ain't buying nothing. So mm-hmm. you know, what I'm saying? you know, hey, yeah, I, I, I get no money from me. <laughs> I feel you. I don't. I don't buy anything. It's not on sale. So. 
I could have two billion dollars. I'll be the same way. You know. Yeah, um, they're not getting money. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, I don't want I don't want your listeners and stuff to think we're like deflecting from the police issue, but <clears throat> I will just say that I've gone through this for 10 years with police departments, North Carolina, now I live in Baltimore City. Um it's just police are accustomed to black compliance. Like right. police are accustomed to two different angles. One angle is abusing our people in the streets. The other angle is finding black folk who they consider polite enough mm. and having meetings, right? Mm. It could be black academics. Like I'm a black woman, criminologist, sociologist, it could be black academics. It could be black folk who have certain experiences. And the whole premise though, is that we have to come into these spaces. We have to define professionalism in a white way, which is come in, use a soft voice, be almost apologetic to white folk, be appreciative to white folk. Mm, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, uh, it I'm, doesn't I'm matter what's it. happening in communities. It doesn't matter if this white officer um, is is putting, you know, well drugs on somebody. But be polite in meetings, and that's and that's why I tell people that's not progress. Because if if you define racial justice through white people approving of you. And everything that's not racial justice, because white people are still you're never going to achieve justice that way. I always like what to is- use that. I always like to use the example, like you know, especially um, young people. All they know is really Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and they yes. say, "Well, you know, well Martin, he did all these peaceful things." First of all, that's not Brother Martin. Martin was very radical. You and I both know that. You studied. You, I'm sure you studied. And you've read up on him. And Malcolm was a, was a little bit more radical. But what I always point out to these people is like, it's a simple dynamic in the United States. Nobody gives you anything. We're not living in a world where anybody gives you anything. The reason why Martin was able to gain his concessions, and that's exactly what they were. They were concessions at that time. The United States had no other choice other than to give these concessions up was because Malcolm and a lot of other brothers, the SNCC, were talking more radical and that fear is what actually gave them that power at that point in time to make those changes. And we know in hindsight that there really weren't many changes made. There weren't any changes made. The only difference is that now you can get a federal job, which over the years have been attacked over over time, you know, federal postings, jobs where people would get their jobs based upon aptitude and ability as opposed to who you knew. And we just had a president who tried to completely and totally obliterate that hiring process whatsoever. So even if you are one of those docile, peaceful type of Negroes, you want to live that lifestyle, even those avenues are being cut off to you whatsoever. What I always say about the police is that what people don't realize about the police is that, and we talked about this as well, is that you're not going against somebody that necessarily hates you. You're going up against a financial structure. These people make so much money. They every, you know, police out here on Long Island, they make over six figures. Police in New York City after five or six years, they're making over six figures. They're raising their families. They're able to send their kids to private schools, better schools than the ones that these kids live in. And their kids are graduating. They're getting older. They're taking the police test. And you know what? Their fathers tell them, like, keeping us away from them 
is what enabled you to do X, Y, and Z. And they're not going to give that up. So you're not really looking at a you're not looking at a situation where there can really be any appeasement because what people are asking for when they're asking to defund the police is you're asking to generally kill whole neighborhoods. There are neighborhoods in New York City and um not even New York City, New York State. There was a, a jail. I forget which town it is, but they were talking about closing the jail during COVID. And what they were saying is that what they were expressing is that the town was going to die because this jail was going to be closed. So they require these black bodies from these inner cities to go up there and basically feed their entire family. But they won't tell you that. They're not going to tell you well, that. Go well, I don't, I, I tell our people to never rely on being told anything. Uh, don't, don't trust these schools, what's in the school material. Like I was raised by two black sociologists, my mom and my dad, and they required my three brothers and me to learn beyond what our predominantly black rich and public schools were teaching us. Mm-hmm. When we came home, we had to watch, we watched BT News. We had to watch Tony Brown's journal. I love Tony Brown. <laughs> Some of our black folk don't know who that is. Y'all better recognize Tony Brown. Uh, we had to watch all of that. Uh, we had to read my parents were like, you're not going to be stuck on what white people are putting in curriculum and have black teachers teaching you. And so, and, and I say all that because, you know, as a professor, I, I taught race and ethnic relations course for years. And the first thing I would do the first day of class is the black students. I would say, tell me something about black history. I don't want to hear nothing about slavery. I don't want to hear nothing about Jim Crow. I don't want to hear nothing about police brutality. I don't want to hear nothing about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I don't want to hear Malcolm X. I don't want to hear Harriet Tubman. I don't want to hear Sojourn Truth. I don't want to hear about, you know, mm-hmm. you, you want- parks, that kind of thing. And the students didn't know. And these were, uh, my students were non-traditional age students. A lot of them were, you know, 50s and 60s. And they did not know because literally they just learned what was in the schools. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot like Malcolm X, also more focused on gender equity in black communities, black families as he got older. Um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he became less trusting of white people. As you know, he spoke a lot about the white moderate, mm-hmm. uh, white people who are compliant. In theory, they're supportive. They support us when they want to hug us. Like, you know, we're a bunch of hippies at Woodstock. But when it comes down to really doing the work, these white Liberals, Oof. white progressives that we call now they disappear. white. They disappear or I mean, again, we're talking about white people who they, they'll tell me this. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my friends. I don't want to lose. And like, see, that's the comfort, mm-hmm. the comfort that right. you all deny having. That's the exact comfort. And so, you know, we oftentimes you'll see photos of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X with firearms and, you know, Martin Luther King, over time, he stopped with the firearms because he was transitioning. And I want our people to understand there is that multifaceted. There's there's times where you can you can feel peaceful because we've all that's what, you know, I got Dr. W.B. Du Bois shirt on. You there know, you go. One of the first black sociologists and criminologists who laid the groundwork, white European sociologists are not the ones who laid all this groundwork for our race workers, sociologists and criminologists. And of course, one of the founders of NAACP with Ida B. Wells. Mm -hmm. 
But when he talks about double consciousness, double clap. Oh, double yeah, clap. A lot. A lot of times, black folk try to misinterpret the meaning of Du Bois as double consciousness to mean token sellout. And that's not what he was saying. He was just saying, you know, we wear different hats. We got to understand how to balance it all. And every black person, we're still alive. We have jobs. We got through school because we had to learn how to accommodate the white system. But that doesn't mean that we have to take it to the extreme. Well, that's the problem. Well, we as a community, we we take that and we turn it into a negative term, um, code switching, um, where they say, you know, some people will say, oh, well, do you go to your job? Do you use your black voice when you're at your job? No, I don't, you know, because it's not, that's not the, that's not going to keep me employed. It's see, always, I do. Yeah. And I would, yeah, see, but you're, you're, <laughs> you're in a unique situation where you can actually do that all the time. Now, when I get the opportunity to, there are plenty of times when I would talk, I would talk to people on the phone I and I could hope. hear because I was a mortgage banker. So I would give people like the real skinny as to what was going on with their houses and things of that nature. And I could hear that they would be a little bit skeptical with what I was telling them. And I would then I would just switch up on it. I'd be like, "Look, you know, throw it in. There. Yeah, I went to Howard." And then they'd be like, "Oh, he went to Howard. Well, not many white guys go to Howard, so he must be a brother." That's good. And then it's like, "Let me." Then it's like, you know, let me come to your house, and then I can come to your house, and I can sit down, and I can have a conversation with you one on one, man to man. You know, culture to culture, we we have the same culture, we have the same understandings. So it's like I was always back then. I was working around it. And I told myself I was working around it in order to do to do good for my community and for my people right. in order to but save what I possibly could. Go ahead. I also want to clarify, though, because when we say things like where we can be ourselves, like me, before I grew locks, I had a big afro. I used to wear dashikis every day, African attire, you know, mm-hmm. I, my my Eric B for president. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. You know, students, they would love, like, she got some hip-hop, she got some African. And here's the thing. <clears throat> when we say being ourselves, too many African Black people have complied. They've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray to believe that being yourself means that you're now going to be ignorant. Mm. Because they have been brainwashed to believe that dichotomy Either you're everything black is ignorant is what you're saying. Yeah, it's not. It's right. not. But that's what white people have. White people and there are black people who will say that they appreciate They'll, slavery because slavery took us from tens of thousands of years of terrorism on the continent of Africa and brought us to Christianity and the white people's version. Because a lot of black folk don't know the original Christianity before King James version, white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. But I always tell black folk actually when you based say, in Africa. Go ahead. (laughs) I mean, well, not only Africa, but, you know, Middle East, you know, Mm -hmm. all these different parts. In other words, not European. Not European. Uh, And who Jesus was, Jesus was not um, someone who would racially be considered white to this day. And so I tell our people, when you say that you're you're putting your white voice on, your white demeanor, we all have had to do that in a sense of what white people consider prim and proper. But never pretend that the other option is running around screaming and cussing each other out. Right. We are a full span of people from tens of thousands of years of cultures, musics, knowledges, sciences, mm-hmm. mathematics. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like you're either going to go into a meeting like, hello, dear sir, or you're going to be like, y'all motherfuckers. Like, right. I need our people to understand. Right, <laughs> right. They have fallen for the white 
narrative that white people are the civilization, that white people taught us language as though they're not tens of thousands of billions of people with tens of thousands of languages. And too many of our people are like, well, if you did not act white, how would they hire you? Well, you know. Because there's a market. (laughs) It's just like anything else. It's just like anything else in the United States of America. There is a market. When I got hired by the real estate companies and the, and the um, mortgage companies, it was very simple. You know, 12% of the population are black people. They want that market. Their surprise always came when I pulled the white people too. You know, Mm -hmm. that was where their surprise came. They were never surprised when I got a black client, but when I got a white client, which was often the majority of my clients, believe it or not, because like there are people who just like want to be told exactly what the fuck is going on with their situation and not be right. lied to it. Don't they don't care whether it comes from a they're not. Not everybody is like you per se. I'm not saying you, but I'm saying you I don't listening to this. So, um, you know, for me, I and I can tell you and like personally, like I can tell you off just as easily in my cold, my my switch voice as I can in my my regular vernacular that I use every day and kind of this is my vernacular that I use every day I don't pretend you know I'm yeah. I'm I'm more of a surprise to the black guys when they when they are saying like yeah I'm fuck you up because then I'm like okay let's see right <laughs> what you about to do <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what you about you to know. do that's, that's, a, that's off topic you're like okay I'm ready yeah you know, that, ready. yeah that's off topic that's like you know that goes towards the <laughs> That goes towards the hip hop thing. But yeah, you know. Well, that's also very, that's just very cultural in terms of language. So when we talk about the origins of Black English, because, you know, remember transatlantic slavery, when, when we were forced onto these ships and forced into certain diseases and all sorts of horror, it was different languages, different religions, different spiritualities, and so forth. And so when we developed our languages, um, those languages are not ignorant. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can look at the Gullah Sea Islands. You can look at all over the United States, America, Canada. I always tell Canadians when they say, we're this awesome place. America's got race problems. I'm like, Canada is all, it's all North America. Like, mm-hmm. Right. I'm saying it's all North America. I see shit happening um, there too. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's research about that. There's, there's protests in Canada. Having a Caribbean festival does not mean that there is racial equity. Thank you. We have Freaknik. We have Freaknik, and that don't mean that black folks have Thank got you. justice. Thank you. <laughs> you know Thank what I'm saying? You. Like that's tokenism as well. When mm-hmm. when white people are like, "Well, we let y'all have a black bikers. Like you ain't letting us have nothing. This don't right. belong to you. This is indigenous land. Right? Africans. You, we just you, still listen. You know, you would not do anything if it. You would not do anything if there is not money involved. Let's just be honest in the United States. So if they got Black Week down in South Carolina, they got Black Bike Week down in there because that is part of their revenue generating system for that month for their city. You know, everything that they do in the United States. Hell, that's really what the Civil Rights Act is about. You know, when you go back to that, you see all the black businesses that were thriving and were successful in all the black families that were doing well under Jim Crow. One of the bad side effects of the Civil Rights Act was that a lot of those business went the way of the dinosaur. They no longer yeah. exist because people, because of the mindset that people were indoctrinated into. Okay, well, finally, we get the opportunity to go to the white restaurant. So the white restaurant must be better. 
And in the meantime, in the interim, if it was better, it's because the black cook was back there cooking for him. Right. You know, making the food food good. So you shouldn't. I'm always down on people who down my culture. You know, my people that down my culture, because you just need to learn more about where you come from and what your history is and what your background is. And it bothers me. That does bother me sometimes. And that's the case also when we're talking about the original Chocolate City, D.C., the extension Mm -hmm. of Chocolate City, ATL, now Charlotte trying to be some chocolate. And, of course, Baltimore City is more than 65% Black. Um, But these chocolate cities are still white-dominated. Why? Because even if it's a lot of chocolate folk running stuff, the funding is still controlled through white-led banks mostly, Mm -hmm. white-led funders for grants, Um, It's the same process. So that's why I tell people, even when we're talking about racial justice work in which we collaborate with white progressives and white anti-fascists, I only do collaborations with white people and other non-black people if they understand that collaborating with me requires you comprehending not being in charge. Mm. You're not the version of HNIC. You're not. And that must be difficult for some. Well, if it's difficult, then they can't collaborate with me. I can't, I don't spend my life explaining this. This is like intro stuff that I tell people, you need to self-meditate to reflect on this before coming into spaces with African Black people. When we're telling you that we're going to collaborate, it's not that we're going to waste our life now explaining this to you. You need to come into this door being ready for this, not needing this intro lesson, but you've already spent time doing the intro lesson. Outside of white people's book clubs uh, with those New York Times bestsellers that I won't call out outside of that, (laughs) if you if you've never been the only white person into a space and you've never been thanked and appreciated and applauded for being that space, then you are not ready to collaborate. And I tell I tell this to white people every day. If you don't know what it means to start an event or a program with African black people and you as the white person, you're ignored daily. <laughs> you're right. Like, people appreciate your collaboration, but you're not the savior. You're not the white savior. You're not the white Jesus. If you've never experienced white that, Jesus. Then you don't get ready. Anytime, ready. anytime you mention white Jesus on the show, it gets like a, it gets a, a clap because so much has been built around white Jesus. So much misinformation has been built around that. And really it's, um, whether you believe in whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or you believe in whatever your religion is, white Jesus is a thing. And it does yes, matter. Yes. It is a thing. Well, we're tens of, we have tens of thousands of religions and spiritualities around the world. And even people who do not follow Jesus as a Lord and Savior still understand Jesus actually did exist. So it's like mm-hmm. we talk about Judaism, right? Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about African Jews as well, understand Jesus as a prophet, but not the son of God. Right. So these are all historical facts. And I tell people when we're talking about changing school systems, it has to include people understanding that just because you believe something for your religion does not make it factual right. in terms of factual. Right. My whole, my whole mission is just to get the truth out. You know, whether it's good or bad, whether it's good or bad, whether you agree with it or not, just the truth, because the truth, once you once you actually have truth in the world, then you can actually move past past things. 
And mm-hmm. this is a world that we're living in that people like are really hiding truth is like a, is a 24 hour job. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the same thing I used to say, like about dating and everything. They say, well, you know, you're a, you're a liar and everything. And I would say, listen, I don't lie because it takes too much fucking energy to keep the lie straight. It takes a lot of energy to remember what you said. Right. Lying. So now mm-hmm. just imagine a whole system and culture, economic system, cultural system, um, court system, anything, any type of system that you that exists here in the United States, all based upon a lie. Someone's got to keep that going 24 seven. And yes, but we have, go ahead. Now I was just going to say, we have to remember that people, humans have lied tens of thousands of years. And I, you know, my pro blackness is based on facts. It's not based on this romance novel that we've created about the continent of Africa, the largest continent to pretend that before colonialism, before Christian missionaries, before transatlantic slavery, we were a huge continent with all these different nations, cultures, religions, spiritualities, and we were all hugging each other. Yeah, that's unrealistic. And we were all kings and queens. Like I tell people, the best way for me not to return your call is to contact me like, hey, Queen Kenya, because, you know, my name, my brothers and I have Swahili first and middle names. I'm right. Kenya Nauru. Don't call me Queen Kimya Nauru. Why? Because I don't think it's a compliment to define us as only being valuable if we're considered royalty. Yes. Like, because kings and queens around the world for tens of thousands of years became kings and queens, oftentimes by raping, murdering, and and abusing their own people to get that ranking and status. Most of our people came from poverty, struggle, but that does not determine knowledge and intellectualism. I think it's very knowledge and intellectualism doesn't mean you have to be wealthy and a king and queen. So I want our people to escape the whole king and queen. Like don't ever people keep doing this. They want to buy me a t-shirt with a big old afro and it says queen sister. That's Mm. not a compliment to me. I'm not a queen. I wasn't a princess when I was a child. I am Dr. I'm Kimi Nuru Dennis or Dr. Kimi Nuru, depending on where we are. And it's fine if I was poor on a farm with some goats. Mm-hmm. That does not diminish our African black cultures and knowledge. Well, I always tell people, be careful what you aspire to be. Yes. And I always, I also always have said that I don't aspire to be them. That's you know, right. I'm not looking to, I'm not looking to, uh, better my life so that way I could move into a neighborhood necessarily that's, you know, better or worse. Personally, I'd rather live up on a, I, I'm, I'm with some of these, some of these uh, radicals, you know, I'd rather build me a house up on a hill with guns pointing down, you know? Mm. So, we scared so, you now. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's a different, that's a different thing, but I'm not, a, I'm not yeah. much, I'm, I told you, I'm not much of a junior. I'm not much of a people person when it comes to things like that. Cause I, I, I can't deal with the, um, I can't deal with the duplicitous nature of people. You know, the fact that yeah. I can't deal with everything that's the, the 24 seven having to keep the lie up and going. And I wanted to ask your opinion about something. It's a little bit off topic. We never actually, okay. we didn't actually talk about it, but um, I don't okay. know if you follow basketball, but have you, have you seen what's going on with uh, Kwame Brown and these uh-huh. other guys on the internet? So I, I, I tried to follow it. I'm, so I'm going to let you know. 
Okay. I'm an old school NBA person. I'm still like a Dominique Wilkins. Right, right. Maddie Johnson. I'm old school. So like the new stuff, I'm just not interested in new games. You ain't you ain't telling me nothing. When you say those names, <laughs> it's like that's like my childhood yeah, right there. I'm, so it's like, like I'm with point, you. I'm, I'm still like, that's why I watch ESPN Classic because I want to see Larry Bird. I want to see right. Danny Ainge for three. Right. <laughs> so the new, you know, like he literally said for three. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so the new stuff, I'll be like trying to read the articles. And I just don't be caring. So well, if you can give me a little snippet. Well, yeah, I'm going to give you some background. Kwame Brown is actually, he actually is old school. We're going back to like 2001. He was 19 years old, number one draft pick by the Washington Wizards back in the day when Michael Jordan was doing his uh, was doing his ruination of that team. But I don't know how you can oh. ruin the Wizards anyway most years because they're just bad. Yeah, they're already a bad team. I actually went to see them in college when Chris Webber was on their team. People don't even remember that Chris Webber was on their team. They that's had why, us. That's when they got good. No, but they no. This was before they were good, and they had squad, and somehow they still blew it. They still couldn't get it. They couldn't get it right. But that that team is can't get right. That that team is like can't get right in a, in a uniform. But anyway, yeah. but Kwame Brown was 19 years old, and his name came up in a conversation. Um, I think it's um Stephen Stephen Jackson, Stevie Jackson, and um this other guy um who used to date. They he had the beef with uh the coach of the Knicks who had slept with his girlfriend, I think uh I oh, forget okay. his name, the light skinned dude. He white light skinned pretty boy. But they brought him up and they were saying that how how much of a bust he was and how it was a waste of a pick and all this other stuff. And a homie got on the internet and clapped back on him for the first time mm-hmm. ever. You know. This is a guy who played twelve seasons, didn't do much, like average like Five point six and uh, five point six points and like three rebounds and everything, but made over sixty million dollars. You know, mm-hmm. as a basketball player, grinding it out in the NBA, and mm-hmm. these people were putting bad things on his name. And I didn't watch everything, but I watched this thing that he said today, and he was very strong about black men like Stephen A. Smith and like these Matt Barnes. That's his name. Um, oh, okay coming in and saying all these derogatory things about other black men mm-hmm. about how they, the only way that they're making money in this still relevant is by knocking down other black people. And I'll have to admit, I'm like kind of an internet warrior and I've been on that shit for like three years. Like mm-hmm. that's my whole thing. Whenever I hear like cold words from like, you know, white guys in their statements, when they're saying things, it's like, bing, my ears go up, vocabulary comes out and I start slashing them. I've been right. banned for groups from that, for that shit. Yeah. And I get banned for that because of the fact that, not because of the fact that what I say to these people is so heinous, but because it's so true mm-hmm. that they can't combat it. But this guy came out and he was like, listen, you know, I am the son. You're not going to talk about my mama's son in this way. And there's no reason for it because I worked hard. And I did X, Y, and Z, and I kept my mouth shut. And because y'all want to be a part of this, you want everyone to love you, and you're trying to continue to keep this to keep this money going. You're gonna sit up here and you're gonna talk about 19 year old and 20 year old kids like they're garbage, and knock them down. That's how you make your money by knocking these dudes. You yep. are. He he was saying he correctly said you are the problem. You feel what do you what do you think about that? 
So he's talking about in terms of harming young athletes in particular, right? In particular, yes. Yeah, because, I mean, I used to be a um, tutor for black men football players at two universities. Okay. Um, and, you know, people working hard for some money. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, even though I don't watch NFL, I don't watch NBA, mm-hmm. I support athletes getting paid for their hard work. I don't know if they should be paid as much as they pay. I don't know. I know. I know right. that's a big debate in itself. But yeah, I mean, I, I just don't want black athletes in particular. Like I told the black men football players that I used to tutor for six years. I told them, I don't want you to be dependent upon the system. Well, he's not. And that's the whole point. You have all these guys that came in the NBA, you know, um, 25% of the guys that play in the NBA within three years of leaving the leaving the league file bankruptcy. Yes. This is like an yep. understanding thing. And he correctly yeah, broke it like down. That's like a 30 for 30, you know what I'm saying? That's right. like a 30 for 30 episode. Right. Yeah. And he correctly broke it down. He was like, listen, he was like, you measure a man by acres. I got acres. You know, he's talking about all this stuff. Um, they're talking about Charles Oakley trying to go upside people's head. He said, I'm not trying to fight Charles Oakley, not because I'm worried about fighting Charles Oakley, but because I'm worried about I'm on a one-year contract. And I'm going from, he's basically saying, like, I'm going from year to year. I'm milking it as much as I can. And I really wanted yeah. to, I, I wanted to applaud that brother because he said something. And they, they, they're always getting on Kyrie Irving about one thing or another because, like, you know, the boy is very talented, but he went to Duke. You know, he's very intelligent. Very intelligent, but they hate the fact that he expresses his intelligence. We can't express ourselves freely. Well, yeah. I will say, and this was also the case when I tutored black men, the black men football players were treated different than the black men basketball players. The basketball teams in a lot of schools are considered more even if you don't say intelligent, just doing better in classes a lot of times than mm-hmm. football players because the recruitment for football tends to be very different than how they recruit. For it's basketball. like a plantation. Footballs are like football is like a plantation. And I'm behind yeah. We've talked about it yeah. on the show. We're behind Dion with Jackson State 100% with him yeah. at least trying to get these brothers like some notoriety. You know, hopefully I would like I would like to see them have get better educations. You have these four-year institutions that are making all of these money off of their bodies, and these kids don't even, they walk out with 30 credits after four years. You can't yeah, tell lot, me that's right. Of, yeah, a lot of the predominantly white colleges and universities will go intentionally to, like, Miami, parts of Texas. Like, there's two different states that get the most because they tend to really find the real impoverished young black boys whose families are desperate. Mm. And, and I would just say that when I tutored the young black boys, I encouraged them like, do not rely on going to NFL, please, you know, do something else. So thankfully some of the young black boys, now they're grown men, of course, but you know, most of them, of course, did not go to the NFL. They've got careers. Some went to law school. First, they some were mad at me because they were like, man, you don't understand. I love football. And I mm-hmm. said, love for football is different than once you get into actual system of pro sports. Mm-hmm. It, it, they don't care about your love for football no more. No. They are thinking about their billions of dollars. You're, you're already injured. <laughs> Almost all of you have one injury already. And, um, and so that's the whole thing. And so. And they just they just move you in and out. 
They move you yes. in and out. They move you in and out. And, and your opinion doesn't nice. your opinion doesn't matter. You know, we are you know, I I one of the reasons why or probably the main reason why I started this podcast is because I felt like men, black men in particular, are marginalized. And I know most people don't think about it like that. Because um many times we're seen on television as oppressors, we are seen as um we're at beaters, we're seen as um less than and everything, but the reality is we are pretty much marginalized. They don't want to hear a lot of things that we have to say. And it's sort of like you as a sociologist, you're probably like the most feared woman simply because of your understanding of human behavior. Nobody wants somebody in their head. They don't want you in their head. Well, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a sociologist. Uh, so so, you may I not do, be. A, I do social psychology work where it looks at that, but I don't pretend to be. You may not be. A, you may not be a psychologist, but as a sociologist, you can break down the evil that they do on a level that is um, understandable, relatable, given the platform. Yeah, and I will say for black boys and black men. There's tremendous uh, underrepresentation, minoritization, abuses going on there in terms of, um, I always forget his name, but he's got an album out now. He's, I think he's in New York, but he has a song on it telling Black boys and Black men to cry. It's okay to share your emotions. Yeah. And I just love, uh, I love his music. And he's like, cry, you know, we're emotional. That's okay. We're humans, that kind of thing. And I think that's very important. So thankfully I'm connected with some black men, mental health professionals. So they've actually started support groups for black boys and black men to address crying, to, to not feel like crying messes with your sexual identity and being gay is not ostracized either. So these are these safe spaces that are very important. And so that's part of the work I do. I actually spent years doing work with black men. Mm. I paused that research a few years ago because I always tell people there are two groups who harass me, white people and unfortunately cisgender heterosexual black men. Because, you know, Mm. me, I do a lot of gender equity work. A lot of black men, they want their pro-blackness, pan-Africanism to be about black men being in charge of everything, which was also Mm. how the civil rights movement was. And women like myself, Dr. Angela Davis, Ida B. Wells, all of, you know, we're like, we in this, we literally side by side. I'm not going to be in the kitchen um, in charge of raising kids while you kind of marching down the street. You're not going to do it that way. So some black men, unfortunately, have had a problem with that. But I tell people this, we don't, I don't play oppression Olympics with nobody, including my people. Well, I think part of the problem with that is that, and and I thank you for that. Um, I think a part of that is that what we see is what we see elevated from the black. I don't I can't say the the term that you said. Could you say again? Black cis try heterosexual black men. Oh, cisgender heterosexual. So cisgender means biological sex matching with your social gender identity. Okay, so those type of those type of brothers that harbor those types of ideas, those are the ones that are basically elevated. And that's part of like what Kwame Brown was saying about Matt Barnes and these guys. He's like, you know, at one point he says, you know, y'all just want to be part of the same club. All you're doing is jumping around and like trading diseases amongst each each other. You know, basically yeah, saying just, you're sharing the same circle. Those people, yeah. the men who actually, who you describe, who are actually a blight on the community, 
even though some people see them as being something to aspire to, and it is something to aspire to, being successful. Being successful is something to aspire to. Selling your soul, not necessarily. Um, Your behavior matters once you get there. What I got from Kwame Brown today was I got like, you know, I I gained a measure and a modicum of respect for him. Um, Not that I had disrespected him before. I didn't think about him before. You know, honestly speaking, I I am a basketball guy. You know, I played basketball. I'm, you know, I, I'm a basketball guy. Everything with me is like, I understand the game. And I understand I what he... I beat you, though. Uh, you, <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't know how tall you are. How tall are you? You got handles? You got handles? Look, I'm Muggsy Bowles up in this mug. You can't... I'm, uh, I'm Spud McKenzie, either. Okay? So don't... Height means nothing. Don't make Spud and Muggsy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let that one pass because you're a guest. I'm gonna say, okay, you can beat me. You just disrespecting them, uh, 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 acting saying, like they weren't doing what they was doing. They was doing. Hi, right, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, I, I, I look at, I look at these cats and I, and I gain like, I gain a lot of respect for him because it's like he was, he's working. And he sees exactly what they are and what it is. And he said, y'all ain't going to continue to damn black boys. You're not going to continue to be able to talk to these black boys and talk about these young black men like that. You're actually doing their work for them. You're doing their work for them. I make it a, I make it a thing. I make it a personally online. I don't down. I won't down another basketball player. I'll talk about their skills or athlete period. I talk about their skills. I'll say, you know, I don't know, but I always say, you know what? I'm not in their locker room. I don't know what's going on with those people. It's like, you know, but for me to sit up here and say that there's a problem with their personality off of watching a report that somebody else did, that somebody else did, that somebody else did, that just makes me an asshole personally. I just think that that, those, that person's an asshole. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, people use a lot of excuses to, to be an asshole, and I would like to apologize to Spud Webb for being an asshole and you, accidentally calling him Spud McKenzie. You, <laughs> you need to apologize to me. But you know what? I'm going to put what? my shorts on. I'm going to put my shorts on and my sneakers, and we're going to see. We're going to see. Oh, famous last afraid. words. Oh. I'm going to get you in that middle. <laughs> <laughs> they listening to this one. My old basketball coach is like, nah, you can't let it happen. You can't go down. Uh, like people that. just don't admit when they get old. Like, that's like, We'll be dancing to some reggae or percolating. We just had to realize that the way we dance now in our 40s and 50s is different than 20 years ago. And it's always embarrassing because you think you're going to be the one to show the percolate for real, for real. And the young folk be like, you could have just set that one out. I still I still got my, my bowl skills. I still bowl. <laughs> yeah, but it looked different than you think it does. No, I see. Uh, now you sound like my daughter. See, I, I got problems. She's trying to <laughs> warn you. She's giving you a warning. You got problems, but you know what? <laughs> <laughs> She's just trying to warn you before you get into like a real spot after COVID and you about to do your thing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, people yeah. on the side are like filming you to put it on black Twitter. Listen, I, to- I still got it going on for an old man. I can't wait to this. I'm uh, glad that I'm glad that this COVID is over. You know, I'm still, I was a personal trainer. I still got my COVID is over. COVID is over. Well, you know what? It's not, it's definitely, no, it's not over. It's not over. Well, I'm going to, it's not over for black folks to wear masks. Even if you're fully vaccinated, 
Black folk wear masks. 4,000 people died just yesterday in India. There's nothing. COVID is not over Black folk. Don't think you're right. going to the nightclubs, hanging out. And then when you get sick, you're going to say um, it's the establishment, the government. Now, this is where this is where I agree with you. I cannot go to a nightclub at this age because I will re- I, I will look ridiculous there. But there's black you know. folks who've been going to the nightclub for over a month because they unfortunately live in cities and states where things are no longer shut down. And I tell people when I talk about anti-establishment, dismantling police, I don't support any political party. I don't support any president. I don't support any politician. None of that stuff. When I say that, it includes not being a fool for the government when the government says we're no longer shut down. Don't be Sambo sellout and run yourself to the bar. White folks should not have to tell you to protect your neck like Wu-Tang said. Yes. Well, we're actually going to be talking about that on our show on Thursday. I'm going to have my COVID um, nurse, Winston Michael, is going to be joining us again. Michael is actually going to be joining us again. So you should, you know, he's got some interesting things. I'm personally not vaccinated, not planning on getting vaccinated. I do take my vitamin D. I do take my CoQ10. I have been doing that for a long time. And I wear a mask and I stay away from people. I, when I say, when I say it's over, you know, I just think about it in terms of other people, me, um, I pretty much spend yeah. most of my time here anyway. So it's like, and I'm not, you're not going to see me intermingling. If before COVID, I wasn't hanging out. After COVID, I'm not it hanging out. It ain't over for them either. America is a horrible place. Whenever people talk about, you know, we think about Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson, mm. back in the day, was see, like, we don't that. have to go back to Africa. We don't have to not be patriotic as a people. We can choose because our people built this country not by choice, but by force. Mm. So, you know, I always tell people that you want to feel free. You're tired of COVID. Well, guess what? COVID ain't tired of you quite yet. So, uh, again, I'm just going to reenact Wu-Tang video. Right. You best protect your neck. You protect <laughs> your neck. I'm just going to do that video for y'all. You best protect Hip-hop your neck. Hip-hop historian. We can't, we can't be fools. Yes. Like any other time, we talk about five centuries of white terrorism, scientific racism, and medical racism that white people did five centuries on the Western Hemisphere, so much that Adolf Hitler appreciated it, learned from it, pulled from it, mm. used it in Nazi Germany for the Holocaust that killed Jews, including African Jews and including people, black and brown people. And it's learn from it. So don't fall for the okie doke. And it's interesting that it's all coming full circle now in Palestine. Um, yes. It's a t- touchy situation, but you know, this is what I mean when I always say to people that I do not wish to become my oppressor. Um, yes. because now that's exactly what some of them are waking up in the morning and they're seeing. They're seeing their oppressors in the mirror. They are exactly the same as uh, some of those people. I know that the the issues are very complex and there's a lot of stuff going on and things of that nature. And I have I have Jewish associates that I deal with and I try to avoid discussing it with them these days. You know, um, some of them feel one way, some of them feel another way. But I know if somebody came into your house, we have these conversations here. What is the gun control thing about? People come into your house. What do you want to do? You want to shoot it out with them for your property. 
And they seem to have a problem with the Palestinians doing the same thing. Well, and we have to remember Judaism and Islam are not race neutral. They vary by race as well. Like I have black Jewish family. Um, One of the synagogues that I'm very familiar with has a lot of Ethiopian Jews, but for the most part, almost all synagogues in North America are still mostly white. Mm -hmm. And so when you see a lot of um, Jews defending Israel in the Western Hemisphere, they tend to be white Jews more more often than not. And they're white Jews who pretend that they're not white. They get insulted when you call out the race because they're like, Judaism is Judaism. I'm like, no, that's that's a that's a whole other that's a whole other white Jew. Uh, Ethiopia, you know, we have Jews all over this world who are black and brown folk. And so it's, it's only white Jews who say that, though. You'll notice that black and brown Jews will celebrate Judaism mm-hmm. while also saying that we're not going to pretend we don't see y'all white folk mm-hmm. and understand the tensions between black communities and white Jewish communities as well. When we're talking about, you know, histories of cities as well. So yeah. um, you'll notice that there's that racial division when addressing Israel and Palestine. Well, the, the racial makeup and diversity of Israel can, that's a whole other show completely and totally. I see people um, discuss like, you know, who are saying people just, they just, they just say stuff out of their ass, you know, like, um, it's anti if you're against uh, Israel, then you're anti-Semitic, you know, not even understanding that both sides are Semites. Um, I also want to offer this, though. There are many Jewish people who do not like the term Semites. Yes. So this is why I use terms like anti-Judaism, anti-Jewish instead of anti-Semitic, just in case some people do not like these things are. These things are multi-layered. They're multi. There, there's more than just what you get on your news or what you get in your meme about those stories. And that's what I mean about yes. the Semite thing. You know, most people don't even understand what I'm talking about. Most people yes. don't even they don't even understand what what the fuck I'm talking about. They don't know that um, a lot of the you know even talking about the black G- Jews and um, from um, from Africa, the African Jews, the Ethiopian Jews, many of them mm-hmm. being sterilized and oppressed and trying to get them kicked out of Israel. You know, they don't a lot yeah. that state doesn't necessarily want the Ethiopian Jews there. You know, and we have we have more than a century of black leaders such as Dr. W.B. Du Bois, who's on my shirt, mm-hmm. who critiqued uh, white Jews taking over black communities. He said that long before Louis Farrakhan said it. And uh, of course, all of that was considered anti-Jewish. And that's where we always distinguish. It's dangerous. They tend, it's they a, tend not to say that about black and brown Jews, though. It's, yeah, they're, it's, they're talking about the racial component within Judaism. It's a dangerous conversation. It's a dangerous conversation. They will cancel you quicker than anyone else. They well, will cancel right, you quicker because, than anyone else. Well, yeah. white supremacy includes pretending ignorance of how racial categories were created by white people, how racial categories were intentionally designed to put tens of thousands of years of billions of people from billions of religions, spiritualities, cultures, ethnicity into these tiny categories that were like 
five categories. It also used to include Caucasoid, Negroid, Mongoloids. That's why I tell Black folks, stop saying Caucasian. Unless you want white people to start putting Negroid on your census, stop saying Caucasian because that came from Caucasoid and we ain't no damn Negroids and people of Asian diaspora are not Mongoloids either. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all this goes together. So when people say they want to cancel whatever, I say I spit knowledge. Mm. The knowledge that you ain't being taught in K through 12 in colleges, universities, even if you have a PhD, you were taught what white people wanted you to learn. I truly don't care if people are offended by knowledge. You're talking that P.E. Chuck D. knowledge. Yeah. Wicked, wicked, KRS-One knowledge. I mean, <laughs> I was, you know, let's Chuck D and Karis mm-hmm. One. You know, he Karis One got his own problems, but he was right about the whole black cop, black cop, black cop. Mm-hmm. But you know, I tell people facts are not based on whether or not you're going to cry, whether or not you're going to be mad. It's okay if you don't want to talk to me no more. But what you're not going to do is get into another space and pretend I never taught you this information. That's I cool. tell people this every day, including white folk. You can be mad at me. You can send me an email tomorrow anonymously calling me a nigger. I save all of that and use those for my presentations and trainings about what white people do. But I'm the quote unquote nigger who taught you some stuff and you felt threatened because I did not allow your white self to prove to pretend ignorance that white people have always pretended even when black folk have wasted our time giving free knowledge to white people. Dr. Kimye Nuru Dennis. Thank you for your time today. We are with that hour just flew by and added another 10 minutes to it whatsoever. And it just went through without no time. And I would really, really, really like to have you back on another show. Um, I'd like to introduce you to the panel of fools that I actually deal with. I don't know if you've listened to those shows before, but, um, they can get kind of interesting, but I think that you would add some, I think that you would add a a great perspective to a lot of our conversations. And I'd love to like, you know, invite you to come back another time and actually be a part of one of those shows. And also, um, you know, doing this one-on-one thing with you has been great. And I think you need to give yourself a round of applause. I was about to say, you talking about alcohol? It's too soon. No. <laughs> See, like, there you go. Now. There you go. Don't, don't. There Come you now. go. So, you know, thank you to everyone listening to this special Tuesday talk, Morning Trouble. Um, listen to us every two weeks for these special conversations that are talking about mostly our culture. So I don't know if everybody wants to listen to it, but I know at least half of y'all do. If you don't want to hear it, don't invite yourself. There you go. There you go. There you go. And if you want to disinvite yourself, put raisins in your potato salad. Holla holla for a dollar. Born in trouble. We'll see y'all on Thursday. Actually, Friday in the morning. Friday in the morning. Listen to our podcast, and I'll be posting this later. Peace.